Welcome to Voices from the Bench, a dental laboratory podcast. Send us an email at info at voicesfromthebench.com or look for us on Facebook at Voices from the Bench. Greetings and welcome to episode 233 of Voices from the Bench. My name is Elvis. And my name is Barbara. Raspy, what's up? Nothing. How are you today? I got a sore throat and I'm a little raspy, but I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. You uh, fully recovered from the triathlon? Yeah. Uh, yes. I didn't even need to recover from the triathlon. Thank you very much. That's how hard you are. I guess so. <laughs> I should say, long live the queen. The queen is dead. I know. My family's so there. They just flew into London yesterday, and it's like mayhem. I bet. I mean, they didn't go over to spend time with her, did they? No. They went over <laughs> to go on a cruise because my sister's spoiled, and my parents give her everything. So there's a sister dig. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That is sad about the queen. I actually heard an interesting tidbit that she's been alive for a third of America's history. Yeah, she Isn't was, that nuts? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that super quick. Absolutely. Oh, I see we have a milestone. What yeah, is it? Yeah, on to better news. There is yeah. a great thing that happened here on the podcast this week. We now have, out and available all the time, over 200 hours of content. That's a lot of freaking content. That's a lot of time. I, I don't think I've ever spent two hours talking to anybody before. <laughs> No. So when I found this out, I started thinking to myself, 200 hours. I was like, I wonder if you could fly around the earth. You could fly around the earth four times in 200 hours. Wow. You can go to the moon and back. Are you sure? They say it took three days to go to the moon. Well, I didn't see how long it took to come back. It's probably shorter because of gravity. I don't know. Holy moly. Or you can watch the whole Sopranos twice. Isn't that nuts? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. So basically that means that we still get along after 200 freaking hours. Well, we're not even going to mention the other 100 hours of all the stuff we had to cut out. (laughs) (laughs) True. But what's really cool is I found this study, and it was in multiple places, and it was on the internet, so you know it's true. Yeah. But it shows that it takes an average of 200 hours of time spent together for someone to become a friend to someone to become a best friend. Wow, really? So everybody in the industry, you are our new best friends. Isn't that great? Yeah, as long (laughs) as they listen for the 200 hours. I assumed everybody did, right? (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you do. At least that's how I sleep at night. All right, (laughs) and you should, you should. This was your brainchild and you've done freaking great with it. I think it's cool that we have 200 hours of stuff out there. I agree. I mean, it's something for everybody. Go back, find old episodes, find favorite guests, share. and Yeah, don't listen to the first 10. (laughs) Yeah. We got better as we went. Hey, cheers to the next 200 hours, right? Yes, sir. I think I got 200 hours left in me. I do, too. Totally. Uh Uh-oh, so one of the smaller LMT shows is happening on October 1st. Yes. Lab Day East is back. Right. You went to Lab Day East once, didn't you? Yeah, I may go this year, actually. Yes. Really? Nice. Possibly. So I've been out to the East Show probably three or four times. And for me, it's always been in Philadelphia. But I hear it used to be in Terrytown, New York. Oh my God, you're kidding me. It's in New York? Yeah. And this year it's going back to Terrytown, New York. Oh, yeah. I've never heard of Terrytown until Lab Day was going, but it must be cool if they're going back. So Terrytown, I don't even know where that is. But I don't either. I don't know. And it's 20 minutes from LaGuardia. Oh, well, that's, that's, there you go. That's all you there need. You go. <laughs> I don't know which direction. The Uber <laughs> will get me there. Now, maybe if you're going to be there, maybe we should make plans for the podcast to be there. But there's no definite plans right now. All right. But the cool thing is, is I'm speaking for Preet in the Sleepy Hollow Room. Mm. I have no idea why they call it that. Well, your dogs do because they're listening to you right yeah. now. Come on, Cubby. That's okay. He likes us. I'm going to grab her. Hold on. She won't cry if I'm holding her. Okay. This is live, guys. This is what happens when we're live. The dogs always like to chit-chat in the background. Okay. Now she's happy. Now she's in my arms. All right. So I'm going to be in the sleepy hollow room. I'll be doing my presentation about stud attachments and bars called A Couple of Studs at the Bar. 
I do actually like that. That's pretty snappy. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Goes over pretty well. I'll be with the Preet folks. So if you're in the area, head over to lmtmag.com and register for the free Lab Day East and to sign up for my course. Links are also on this episode's show notes. That's cool if you're going to be there. I hope so, yeah. So, Barb, we spend a lot of time talking about teeth and the mouth on this podcast. And the mouth. And the mouth. You spend more time talking about mouths. I'll talk about teeth. (laughs) I am giggling. All right, move on. (laughs) Which is great. And we really actually wouldn't have it any other way, because honestly, that's the only thing Barb and I know what to talk about. Yep. But by chance, I was introduced to a gentleman named Zach Hetzler. Zach doesn't make teeth or anything else that goes in the mouth. Zach is a board-certified ocularist. So crazy. I love this interview. It's cool. Yes. So this dude makes eyeballs. Yeah, we know it's not teeth, and we're not going to be talking about teeth, but the similarities between what he does and what we do, or even better yet, what denturists do, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. Zach is a second-generation ocularist, and he talks about learning the craft, the industry of eyeball makers, and he takes us through the process from impression to fabrication to even to the final seat. And there's implants in there somewhere. And there's implants. It's crazy. It's a very unique and fascinating conversation about a fellow body part replacement technician. So join us as we chat with Zach Hetzler. Have you unlocked your dental laboratory's potential through 3D printing? Well, with the Asiga, you can. Did you know Asiga has over 500 validated materials on their open material system? And it's growing every day? By harnessing Asiga's proprietary layer monitoring technology with its smart positioning system and its integrated internal radiometer, as a laboratory, you'll be able to produce any indication you desire. It doesn't care if you need models, splints, temporaries, or heck, even permanent crowns. Your investment will be future-proofed with Asiga's rugged engineering, providing you with a fast, accurate, and repeatable machine with a reputation that is time-tested in the dental laboratory industry. If you'd like to learn more about the Asiga's machine or the material offerings, please visit the website at asiga.com. That's A-S-I-G-A dot com. Or contact your favorite dental reseller. And we appreciate your support of the podcast, Asiga. Voices from the Bench. The Interview. We are excited today to introduce kind of a different twist to who we usually talk to on this podcast. But we're joined by Zach Hetzler. See if I got this right. BCO and BADO. Yep. And Zach, you make eyeballs. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that the easiest way to say it? Yeah. I mean, you know, we call them prosthetic eyes. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, eyeballs at the end of the day, <laughs> what we do. We used to call ours prosthetics as well. Well, actually, we still do. We have something in common. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of that thing in our field of you don't say fake eyes or eyeballs. It's custom prosthetic eyes. Yes. Yes, exactly. We don't make teeth. We make smiles. No, <laughs> there you go. Exactly. exactly. So I found you because you're local here in Indiana to me, and I saw that you place an order with Preet. Oh, how crazy. I know. But I looked at this. I was, like, I was like, wait a minute that's not a dental lab. And I reached out to you and I'm like, this is an interesting aspect of kind of what we do. Cosmetics. Yeah, but I want to learn more about it. And I just thought it would be interesting for our listeners to kind of hear what else an industry makes other than teeth. So Zach, how does one get into prosthetic vision I don't know what's the correct term. <laughs> well, no vision, right? Because we're replacing okay. uh, an eye most of the time. So getting into the field, it's a small field. It's a busy field because there's not many of us. So there's not a lot of people that require our service, but there's not many board certified ocularists around. So we stay pretty busy. Well, how many are there in Indiana? 
I mean, do you know? Oh, so based permanently in Indiana, it's just us. Really? That is a small field. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and we've been around, so we're actually a family business, and it's peculiar. A lot of ocularist offices end up being family businesses, family practices, because to get into the field, you have to be sponsored and trained by board-certified ocularists. So a lot of times, kids you know, relatives, siblings will just go into the family business and be trained by their parents, like I said, siblings, whatever, aunt and uncle, whatever it may be, because that's how you get into it is an apprenticeship. So there's no school for it. Correct. So they're developing slowly and surely a more rigid educational program that's called the College of Oculartistry. You couldn't go to like IU or USC yeah. or whatever school it may be and get a degree in oculartistry. It's through the American Society of Ocularists, which is kind of our organization. Um, and it's a very recent thing, the development of the actual College of Oculartistry. Who makes up this board? So it's a volunteer organization. Okay. There's an entity that helps run the business aspects of it, but the contributing members are all ocularists. So that's exactly what you are, right? That's your title? Correct. Correct. Okay. So it's probably a very small board and a small amount of members. So Correct. The organization ballpark is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 to 400 people. Yeah. Wow. We found an industry smaller than the dental lab. Field. I was going to wow. say, do you, consider, <laughs> you consider yourself a cottage industry, probably even smaller than that, right? Yeah. Like I said, it's a lot of us stay busy because there's so few of us. So it's, it's such a drop in the bucket, the population of people that require our services, mm -hmm. but it's such a specialized field. It's a field that like a lot of things, but it, it takes a lot of, energy and compassion and and just wealth of knowledge that's it's just like i said very specialized mm -hmm. you got in it so how did you like take me through how did you learn it yeah yeah so when i talk to clients or patients whatever however you want to refer to them they obviously ask me those questions because we spend a lot of time together through the process of fitting and fabricating their prosthesis and it's something I grew up in. So both my parents are, oh. board, are board certified in ocular. So now my dad, his board certification is expired and he's retired. So mm -hmm. he's, you know, he was board certified, but I grew up in the field. It was something I never considered doing because it was always just what my parents did. I think, <laughs> you know, like a lot of kids. Yeah. Just, oh, that, that's what my mom and dad do. or That's what my dad does. And I was really into sports and physical stuff. And this was more artistic and creative. And that wasn't really my avenue. Mm -hmm. But as I got older, I, you know, got, went to college and I was majoring in criminal justice. And I, got into the part of college where you start taking your actual courses that are more specialized, more geared towards your career. And, yeah. where you'll end up. and I wasn't really enjoying them. And so I kind of lost my way just with where I wanted to go sure. um, career wise and life wise. And so long story short, my mom offered the opportunity of, well, what if you started shadowing at the office, you know, and just see how you feel about that? Because they were at the point in their career at the time where they were making decisions for the end of their career. Do we want to sell yeah. the practice? Do we want to bring someone else in to train them? What do we want to do? What are we going to do? So that's how I got into the field, just kind of universe, right place, right time of me being in the right spot in my life and then being in the right spot career wise of well, come in and try this out. And then 12 years later, here I am. So to <laughs> learn, yeah, right. To learn how to do it. It's very hands-on. It's very much a vocational occupation of you're taught how to do it. You know, you have five to six years of required supervised training. It's kind of the minimum from a board certified ocularist. And then through the ASO, the American society of ocularists, when I was going through the educational curriculum. It was just called the Edu ASO educational program. Now that has evolved into the College of Oculartistry. Mm. But that's where you go and you take what you would imagine like college style courses to build towards your degree or your diploma, which that's what the BADO stands for. 
Did you have to pass a test in order to get certified? Yeah. So when you're doing the education program and you're in your, when I, they're called intern oculars now. When I was training, I was called an apprentice ocularist. Okay. When I was going through my apprenticeship, it was like, just like college. Every, you had to graduate, you have to have X amount of credits in each level, you know, 200, 400, 600, 900 level courses to that's kind of your minimum requirement. And then along the progression of your year, so year one, year two, year three, year four, you take examinations that build upon each other and get harder and harder as you go along. Hmm. And then you also do a practical with the patient and document it and it's very involved of creating a piece and submitting it so you have to make a duplicate so it can be graded on the quality that you're producing and then also with pictures and videos of the result uh, with the patient wearing it and that's just to get your diploma and then after you get your diploma that's when you can sit for your board exam and so then that's what you guys would you know the more common boards where you would take a big exam and then there's also a practical portion of that where you have to replicate an eye to a very very exact degree and submit it to be approved wow that sounds hard (laughs) yeah it's it's pretty involved but it's it's you know it's fun i mean for an industry that has so you know little people coming into it it seems like a really hard test (laughs) yeah and i think that but you want to have the right quality, right? It's oh, absolutely. Very, yeah. It's such a sensitive field that it's hard to explain without, you know, having someone come in shadow or see it firsthand or interact with the people that we interact with mm-hmm. that you really want to, as an organization, just as an ocularist. And like for my parents, like when they were deciding what their next move was, do they want to sell it? Do they want to train someone? It's fine. That, and that's why a lot of families get involved is because you have to have someone that you can trust to carry on your legacy of quality work, of treating people the right way and doing it the right way. The ASO is a young organization in the grand scheme of things, like 1957, I believe is when it was founded. And its foundation was predicated on developing the techniques that are a lot of people still use and are the base for advancements in fitting and fabricating custom prosthetic eyes and doing it the right way. Because a lot of what came before it were what you think of when you think of fake eyes, are the stock eyes, are the ones that look like doll eyes, are the ones where you see the old man with an eye that's huge and just, whoa, that looks messed up. And we still get people that are like, you know, I lost my eye back in the 40s and I remember my dad taking me to the motel where the guy was that had, you know, the box, the drawer of eyes and he found one that was close to the size and close to the color and I've been wearing that ever since. That sounds like our industry, Elvis. (laughs) Yeah. Not exactly, but pretty damn... The parallelisms is very (laughs) kind of eerie, honestly. Yeah. In our industry, you know, the teeth side, what was done back in the day was the foundation of what we're doing today. Yeah. It's very similar. Yeah. So when your mother uh, approached you, it was my father for me to get into the business, but it was your mom for you. So your first steps were just kind of going in with them and watching what they were doing? Or did you do that your whole life? And you pretty much knew what you were getting into? Yeah. So there's kind of two sides to ocularistry at the very base of it. There's the lab side and there's the clinical side, like I'm sure a lot of what you guys interact with. So there's the side where we're actually fabricating and doing the curing of plastics, the polishing, the buffing, the shaping of the designs. And then there's the side of the fitting, the coloring, the adjustments, just the interaction with patients, the psychological side of it. So I grew up in this field. And my funny story is, you know, I was a kind of a knucklehead as a kid. So I was in trouble a lot grounded, not not serious trouble, just, you know, (laughs) hang out with your friends. So I growing up, I would get grounded in the summertime instead of being able to stay home or go run around with the guys, I would have to go in and do lab work and make clear shapes for my parents and things like that. So I had the lab side of it pretty squared away early on, but the shadowing part was come just see what it takes to fit an eye and color an eye and what really goes into what we do. Is it like psychologically, like emotionally at first when you meet somebody that doesn't have an eye, is that part of it something that you really need to, that you struggled with at all, that you had to get used to? Yeah. So, I mean, how could you not? Yeah, and, and that's something that over time I've 
I had great mentors in my parents. I mean, they'd been doing it for a long time by the time I got into it. And they've just, they're very kind people. So I was raised that way. Uh, there is the compassion side of it. And like you said, the psychological assessment and interaction with your patients. And it can be really heavy at times because, yeah. you know, sometimes people come in and it's, you know, something pretty gnarly occurred that they lost their eye and maybe other things occurred too. And you're just that piece of their puzzle and their recovery. So that was daunting. I think the big thing for me when I was getting involved was the kind of the self-induced for sure, but the pressure I put on myself because of the expectation of having your parents as your mentor. Oh, hell uh, yeah. <laughs> Barb knows all about that. <laughs> yeah, of having this clientele because they come back. I mean, five to seven years is the average lifespan and we can go into that stuff later, but so they're recurring. It's a lifelong relationship for the most part. Interesting. But having that, the, the people expecting to see you know, my parents' names are Kathy and JR, expecting to see Kathy or JR. And then here comes Zach. Well, who are you? Yeah. I'm just having the self-induced nerves of, man, I need to interact with these people and, and treat them the same way and produce the same way and the standards that were set by my parents. Yeah. Which were high, I'm sure. Very, yeah. very high. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the process because yeah. I, I find this very interesting. Are patients allowed to come directly to you or does you know, a medical doctor, write a prescription. How does this work? We classify our products, classify still as DME. So to see us, even for cleanings, for adjustments, not even at, to start the process, but just those parts of it, mm -hmm. patients do need to have prescription signed by a doctor, who, whatever level yeah. that may be, for us to be able to validate with insurance that, yeah, this is a required service. This is a medical service for this person. And, you know, it's more just paperwork than anything and getting them to see us. And so we can file and, and do it the right way for them. Is this only from an eye doctor? No, no. Some people will just go see their general doctor that okay. they've seen yep. for a long time. And they're like, yeah, you know, little Susie, you've worn a prosthesis your whole life. Like I know you wear a prosthetic eye. You need to get it cleaned and polished. So most of the time, every year, people that come in for their checkups and their clean and polishes, they'll have an RX sign that, you know, allows us to do any of kind of covers any services we may need to do for them with their prosthesis. Yeah. But I'm sure you have patients that just show up. Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. Happens in a dental lab too. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, that's it. Here's my well, denture spit, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and for the most part, it's, you know, okay, we'll do it. You're here. A lot of time that occurs with us because someone is in town for something else and they're yeah. like, oh, I just thought I'd pop in and see if you guys could see me and stuff. Yeah. And it's just something where being the mom and pop shop, for lack of a better way to put it, that I think that's why we've been around so long and are held in high regard is because we were like, yeah, hang on, we'll get you in. Don't worry. Yeah. And, you know, and that, just do it the right way. And yeah. most labs do that too. Yeah. <laughs> they might not admit it, but they do. Right. For sure. So they're not a repeat customer. They're a brand new customer mm -hmm. and their doctor gives them an RX and they come see you. Are you guys doing any CAD cam? Is it an impression of their eye? How do you measure that? What What is, what is that? Yeah. Like? They eyeball it. Boom, boom. <laughs> let's just kind of, I'm trying to think of a, so let's just do like an example. I'll just run you through yeah. the process of, let's say we have someone who had ocular melanoma, which, you know, that's awful. I always, one of the things I say to people is it's unfortunate that we met me and that we're starting this journey, but you're in the right place to get this taken care of and we'll get you fixed up kind of thing. But let's say they have ocular melanoma. So they have their eye enucleated. They, they just go in, they take it out. They remove the, the entire globe. Okay. Yeah. And then they replace the volume of the globe with an implant, a sphere implant. Oh. More often than not, and almost pretty much all the time now with when they place that implant, they actually reattach the extraocular muscles to that implant hmm. so that it can gather the same motility or close to the same motility as the companion eye or the natural eye did before it. So there's an eyeball implant? Correct. Yeah. I knew that was coming. So that's why you used Preet? <laughs> no, we don't sell implants for eyeballs. <laughs> I think we used 
concrete for the silicone burrs. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think we have implants for eyeballs. No, I, and I, don't, I, don't do, <laughs> I don't do the implants. That's an oculoplastic surgeon. Yeah. That. So that is where people start their journey to meet us is always with an oculoplastic surgeon. Interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. So they have the implant placed about... Four weeks post-op is when they start with us. So they'll be released. They go back to their oculoplastic surgeon a week later. Um, at the time of surgery, they do a tarsorophy. So they stitch the eyelid shut oh. and they place a very generic, I call them just standard post-operative conformers. And a conformer is just a clear template design. Um, and they place one in the socket. So the implant is sealed behind conjunctival mucous membrane tissue. Kind of looks like the inside of your mouth. And then you have this conformer that goes on that, and then you have your eyelids. And then they stitch them shut, and then a week later, the patient returns to the oculoplastic, has the stitches released, they assess the socket, and they say, okay, wait about two to three weeks, and then you'll be able to go see the Hetzlers. And this is all set up before, sure. most of the time before they have surgery. But you're going to go see the Hetzlers um, at, at this time. So when they present with me, they're normally about four weeks post-operative. At that time, that's when we do our initial assessment, our consultation, just the introductions. And that's when you kind of feel the, the, the patient out and see where we're at with the recovery and then what's going to entail that part of it. And then the work that we do at that first appointment that we call a conformer check is we take that post-operative conformer out and we make a custom clear template that's not the exact design their prosthesis will be, but it's a piece that is going to lay the foundation for us to actually fit and fabricate their prosthetic eye. So it's a clear piece still, but it's bigger in volume and perimeter to fit into their socket to kind of help stabilize that tissue and get any residual edema out of that tissue. Hmm. Yeah, are these like preformed? So, you know, we have all kinds of shapes and this is mainly because we've been around for a long time, but you kind of have your your oh, and round. <laughs> Keep going, sorry. Your assortment of, you know, they're split left and right. And at the end of the day, it's small, medium, large. But I mean, they're every shape. And a lot of times the way that we create these pieces are from molds of eyes we've made previously that we'll just say, oh, that's a pretty good shape. And we'll cure six of them and just have those clear templates because these are just starting places. These are just stabilizing pieces, get people used to wearing something that's going to be bigger and kind of feel more like their prosthesis. Cause when we actually fit their piece, it's all custom to, to that eye socket. Yeah. So we would call this a temporary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. And it's the same thing. It's just different terminology. You know, yeah. I, we call it custom conformers, but essentially it's exactly that. It's kind of a temporary placeholder to help stabilize stuff and get them ready for the fitting of their actual prosthesis. Okay. So they wear that for how long? Normally, Again, so if we're talking what like the just very straightforward enucleation, which is the name of the procedure where they completely remove an eye, four weeks we start the with the conformer, and then normally about two weeks after that, so about six weeks post op, they'll come back, and that's when we actually do the custom fitting for their design. Okay. And how do you do that? Yeah. So the custom fitting, a lot of the time we use that conformer that we fabricated. And, you know, let's go back real quick. Those conformers where I said, you know, we have these pieces made prior and we kind of base it off that. Mm -hmm. We still hand tool everything. So we'll take volume out. We'll take perimeter down. We use Dremels just like you guys do. And yeah. it's, but you know, I'm not working on people a lot of time. So I just go get the Dremels, you know, the $40 one from Lowe's instead of the <laughs> yeah. 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 Them. I mean, we just really eat them up and we're doing it back in our lab. We don't do it, you know, near the patient, but so we, we hand form and shape those conformer templates to that socket. So it's normally a pretty good foundation for their actual prosthesis. When they come back for the fitting of the actual eye, we say, okay, you've worn this piece. You know, it was good at the time of that post-operative consultation appointment, that conformer check, we call it. Uh -huh. But now we need more volume. There's some undulated tissue, some uneven tissue, or some bands in the socket, which would just be the way the socket's healed and how, you know, sometimes there's scar tissue and other things that we kind of have to work around. Mm -hmm. So we'll say, okay, we need volume. The way that we manipulate volume and perimeter of designs is by actually using a alcohol torch and melting wax and then hand shaping and smoothing it to fill out that volume and that perimeter that we may need. Out of wax? Yep, out of wax. It's cool and smooth before we ever try it in. 
but it's dental wax. I mean, everything yeah. that we, we use is the two main industries that we take stuff from are dentistry or orthodontist and jewelry because yeah. we use like jeweler lathes and other things yeah. to kind of work on small pieces. But so we form it with wax. And again, it's, I always tell people it's going to be cool and smooth before we ever try it in, but it's just a way for us to manipulate the design and the volume. And then more often than not, we do end up using alginate and taking an impression of the posterior of their socket on the posterior oh, that's great. of that design. Wow. Yeah. How does that work? Do you have little impression trays that shape like yeah. an eye? Oh, really? Yeah, so <laughs> we do. Most of the time, we spatulate and apply it to the back and then kind of slam dunk it in because we've the impression trays in our industry that are kind of the mass ones that everyone has are kind of just much more generic designs. Yep. So we actually make almost an, a custom impression tray wow. for that Sweet. document by making this conformer in this design. And then the last step is taking that impression. Mm, very cool. And we take that and make a mold of it, much like I'm sure you guys do. Yep. Make a mold of this piece with the alginate on the back, or if it's just a wax fitting with the wax design. And then that mold with front and back is our blueprint to actually make their prosthesis. Wow. So then what? So then, so, okay. So we do the start, we make the mold. I got the template. They come back a week later and that is when we actually, we do everything by hand. We do everything in our office. So we mix our own plastics. We cure our plastics. Um, we do all of our tooling, all of our polishing, and we do all of our coloring. And that is hand painting. Wow. So when they come back for their last appointment, which is their painting appointment, at that stage, we have this design made it's a white shape so we have the white acrylic we didn't talk about what they're made of they're made of pmma plastic so polymethyl methacrylate yeah interesting we use clear and we use white we use a liquid mixture of the clear and polymers and monomer mixed in a certain ratio to be the base of our paint so when it cures it all cures the same and it cures solid we do that in our office which you can buy it but you know, once again, been around for a long time. So when you know how to make it, it's much more cost effective oh, I bet. to actually just make it yourself. So they come back, we have this, this shape, it's a stark white shape and it has kind of a, a background iris color embedded in the white. So you kind of have this flat disc with color on it. So if it's, you know, let's say it's like a uh, just a blue eye. So if it's a, it's most of the time I like to start with a darker blue because you can build all your colors out of it. And so in between the fitting and the painting appointment, we actually make what's called a painting shell. So it's a three cure where we cure it in white with the button. Then we reduce that volume down and I'll actually pack clear plastic onto the reduced white shape and cure it again to make an exact fitting kind of, uh, it's called a painting shell. It's just a clear cap that goes onto the piece, yeah. but it mimics the final layer of clear that we cure onto it after we paint the piece, which allows us to try in the design while we're working on the artwork wow. to really see how it's going to look. How long does that process usually take? Which part of it? Oh, I mean, up and to do that. The lab work? Yeah. Yeah. So the lab work, you know, it's like I'm sure you guys know in your industry, the machines that we use are with the pressure, the pressure cookers we use Uh are just fantastic. (laughs) So when I was growing up, you know, those things weren't readily available. So a lot of times they did what's called the water bath technique where they just monitor the the temperature of water over a really long period of time Mm -hmm. to cure the plastic. Well, now with these pressure cures, I mean, Cure takes us, we run it on 30 minutes, so it has to heat up and do all that. So I would say it takes about 45 minutes to do a cure from pressurized sure, to heat to yeah. pressurized. And then the lab work per piece, I mean, when you get to the end of it, we probably have, oh man, I don't even... I guess I don't think about it while I'm doing it. <laughs> time invested in, in each design, you know, but that's why we give ourselves a week so we can kind of take our time and, you know, cure it in white and yep. reduce it and then get it ready and cure it with that clear. And then the painting part, we always say, give us about an hour and a half to two hours to color it. And they get it that day as well. So that's, you know, they come in, we paint it, we get it right where we want it. And then they go on a break. 
for, we send them on about a two hour break just to cure that one layer of clear onto it. Mm-hmm. And then it comes out and we take it down and polish it and they get it that day. So are you doing it direct when you're painting? Like, do you put it in there and then look at their other eye and then do, you know, it at the same time or? Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, all oculars that are part of the ASO, we're all trained in similar techniques, but then you find what works for you. Mm-hmm. At our office, I've heard people that have come from other Ocularis office. They're like, well, you know, they took some pictures and they, they colored it. And then I came back a couple weeks later, it was ready. They checked it. And if they needed to tweak it, they would have me come back. For us, we do it from scratch. The white, the sclera, the iris, all of it, the pupil size, everything with them sitting there. So we actually have them sitting at the table and I have my paints out. And then I go and we dry it in a heat lamp. And then we put those clear cap on it. After we've dried it, we cool it off, put the clear cap on it. And then we can actually try it in and say, okay, now that I see it in your socket with this simulated corneal dome on it, I see how your you know brows are hooding it and all that kind of stuff. I need to add more gold or I need to take some out or whatever it may be. That allows us to kind of quality check the painting and the artwork on it before we decide to finalize it with that permanent clear cap. So do you just go grind it off really lightly, like with a high speed or with a handpiece? So more often than not, it's more just manipulating your paint with different colors or if you need more detail, things like that. I will say if you're working on the sclera, the white part of the eye, and you get it too dark or whatever it may be, I've learned it's just easier to go back and we use like an arbor band and just take it off. Gotcha. Wow. And then start over. (laughs) How many different colors are there to work with? Um, well, so everything's custom. I mean, and the background colors that we make, we paint them on dyes ourselves. So if it's a, if someone comes in and they just have, let's say they have like that aqua hazel that has all kinds of details and crypts Mm -hmm. and stroma in it, Mm -hmm. I'll actually paint something specific for them before their painting appointment so that we have a really, really good starting place. But if you just have kind of a dark brown eye, again, we make all the stuff, but we'll paint them like a set of eight of just kind of dark browns to be starting places. But then you still add those little minute details to that when the person's there. So, you know, number of colors, any any eye, eye color you can think of. I mean, I've been doing it for 12 years now. I bet you I've done it or something similar to it. So so that's really, I mean, don't get me wrong, but that's really where the artistry is. I mean, isn't that when they look at the other eye and it looks exactly like they're the one that's real, if you will, and the prognosis, yeah. isn't that like emotional as hell for them? Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that's the part of the job, I think, that keeps you coming back and keeps yeah. you as invested as we are on a daily basis is because, you know, that's, that's the part of the journey that for most people is that light at the end of the tunnel is that good part is when they finally see it, you know, and and we have people that maybe somebody had an injury when they were, you know, 14 and they're in their forties now, and they just didn't know this was an option. They just hadn't met the right people or they hadn't thought of it. Or someone early on was like, well, you know, you just kind of got to deal with it. And then they find out that a prosthesis is something that's out there. And then they're like, oh my God, I haven't seen two eyes look back at me in 30 years. Mm. And so, you know, it is, it is. That's the rewarding part of our field. Are there any colors that are harder to do in your opinion than others? (laughs) Like Somebody comes in, they're like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, again, I keep defaulting to the, if you get a dark brown that has, you know, it's just washes a color versus if you get like an icy blue that has a bunch of detail in it, they all have their challenges because just because it's something is dark and doesn't have a lot of detail, it's still pretty easy if you're not really on your toes and locked into what you're doing to get it too dark or to get the sclera a little too dark. But I would say the light irises, for iris colors specifically, I would say the light colors that have a lot of detail. Yeah. Would be the kind of thick one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever get excited when you get to do like green eyes or something that's like a little bit yeah, more 100%, rare? 100%. Are, do you really? <laughs> I actually had a gentleman in, in here today that I delivered. He's bilateral. So he actually wears two prosthetic eyes. And so they're unique because we don't let him get you know, you can't let them get super crazy because you want it to, to be natural looking and, and such. But he's on his, I think, third or fourth set. And this time he really wanted sharp aqua hazel. And and to me, aqua hazel is kind of that blue green on the outside and then, you know, some orangey gold on the inside. And so it's something that, 
we get from time to time, but just being able to kind of get a little creative with it because you're painting these two prosthetics to match each other, not match your companion eye. So it's, you know, those are kind of the, oh, we get to be a little creative and and have fun with it. But no, 100%, when you get a unique color, it's okay, or a really challenging one, you're kind of like, all right, here we go. (laughs) Game on. (laughs) You know, you get it. And they're like, man, I, I, you have people that are like, I didn't think you would be able to match it like you did. And, and that's just, you know, that's why you do it. It's like doing a single central. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what that is, but I'll take you. <laughs> well, you have somebody that comes in and they don't have either eye and they have a vision of what they want their color to look like. That's astounding. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, or, you know, you get a family member that's like, eh. I think, you know, light blue will look really good or something. And then if the person comes back and they've known they've had a light blue, they're like, well, what if we change it up and went more of like a green or more of a hazily brown or something like that? But for the most part, yeah, people have an idea. More often than not, they have had some kind of vision in their life. Hmm. You know, they have that frame of reference. Do you ever get people that really want like something bold? And you have to like, kind of be like, I don't think you really want to do that. (laughs) In our field, it's when people want completely white teeth on a denture and you're like, are you sure? Uh, (laughs) Kind of starts to look like doll teeth at that point. So you do. And a lot of the times you'll get people that kind of will jokingly say, you know, you know, my buddies back at work, they're like, oh man, you should get a Terminator eye or something like that. <laughs> you know, you, they, they chuckle about it, but they're like, yeah, but you know, they're not the one that would have to wear it every day and, yeah. and such like that. So you get a lot of that, but I will say, uh, as I look in my lab and see the projects that I've, I'm working on that we call, you know, fun eyes or, or novelty eyes. That is starting to grow. And I think a lot of it has to do with TikTok and Instagram and like a lot of things with especially younger people. They're seeing other people on there that have, oh, you know, I had this kind of eye made and, you know, I have my collection of eyes. But so you do get them. But the problem is, is that insurance doesn't like to pay. (laughs) So, you know, that deters a lot of people because, you know, the effort put in and the the quality of piece and material that we produce and that we use makes them more expensive than I think people think when they don't have to worry about it when their insurance is taking care of it. Does anybody ask for the David Bowie where it's just a different color than their other one? You do. And you know, it's, I don't know what that term is called. I call it the David Bowie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I feel like I should know the actual term, but it's hydrochroma something it's it's where they have two different colored eyes and you know i've had a handful of people where and they show me picture proof and they'll say you know i i have this blue eye but i promise you this eye that i lost was you know brown with a little bit of green in it and they show it to me and they're like that's what i want and i do get some people who don't aren't that situation but are still like you know I, i would love to have you know a different colored eye hmm it's tough you know you always try to mitigate that and say, you know, I'm by contractually kind of obligated to make you a, a prosthesis that is natural and matches your companion eye. I can't do a skull, man. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That falls into the novelty eye. That's that's a completely, you know, side project. Like I'm working on a uh, dragon's eye for this gal that her husband, he actually airbrushed me this on a I mean it's probably the size of like two full-size frisbees or like two dinner plates put together mm-hmm. he airbrushed a big dragon's eye he did just something he does for fun and he brought it in and signed it so I have that hanging up in my patient room and wow. he's really adamant and she's on board with it and so I made her 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 natural looking eye but he's like I want her to get this you know this exact dragon eye to have the <laughs> kids will love it and she was oh yeah I want it so I'm working on that right now for her. Uh, and, and, you know, those are fun. They have their own challenges, but but that's the side of the field, again, where you can kind of get creative and have fun with it. So the people that do proceed and really want one, it it's a lot of fun for us to do. Most techs will make fangs. It's the same oh, thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. For Halloween, okay. they'll make fangs or something, yeah. you know. So it's still that it's different and it's fun. Can you make those novelties to fit over eyes or globes, I think you call them, that are 
normal i don't want to say normal this terrible term contact no that's and you hit it right on the head barbara it's kind of that's more contacty okay. to me yeah the iris because the pieces we make no matter what even if we make really thin prosthesis which we would classify as a scleral shell it's still going to be opaque so you wouldn't be able to oh, to see through it sure okay so i've got some technical questions yeah for sure needed to patients so you were talking about it fitting, but what keeps it in there? So there's a shell, there's the implant. Does it like pop into place? Does it move around? Does it need lubrication? Like how does it function daily? Yeah. So, you know, me as I consider myself still, even though I've been doing it for a while now, a younger ocularist, I kind of was brought up under the the idea or the mindset of consistent lubrication for everybody. Because, you know, I think that's just a good habit that most of us as people don't do with our natural eyes is lubricating them and using eye drops or irrigating with saline consistently just to kind of reset and refresh. And so with a prosthesis, you think of it, you know, at the end of the day, it's custom fit. It's it, it's designed for your socket, but it's a piece of plastic that you wear in your eye socket. So unless you're getting 100% natural tears, which I would say the majority of our clientele doesn't because whether it was injury or just from surgery, one of their glands that secretes the different layers of tears was, was damaged, Mm. removed, altered. And so they're not getting that natural blend that they should be. So they're getting more mucusy, heavier type secretions instead of natural tears. Mm -hmm. Lubrication can really help mitigate that because a lot of times your body produces that stuff because of irritation, because of dryness in your socket. So that's where that lubrication comes in. A lot of people use just lubricating eye drops and it's easy for them because they're like, yeah, I just put a drop, two drops on my prosthesis and two in my good eye and off I go for my day. But there are plenty of people as well that need heavier duty drops where they have like silicone oil-based drops that are designed for prosthetic really? eyes and, wow. and an anatomic socket. Yeah. Yeah. And so they just like, as soon as they start feeling it stick, they just put another one in. Is it like an all? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I recommend, so, you know, let's, let's go back to our ocular melanoma person that we just made a new eye for. They come, we deliver their eye and and I normally give them a sample bottle of oil. And I say, my recommendation as you're getting used to this piece, especially is to start your day with oil and you'll get that slide and that glide and that, that good feeling. And if that feeling goes away, put a couple more drops in. And then that's kind of how you base your lubrication regimen is more of a feel thing to answer your fitting question that you had about how does it stay in? So that's where, you know, taking an impression or really fitting up against that implant because they're sphere implants. So more often than not, when a patient presents for the actual fitting of their prosthesis, we have a pretty defined like front of a basketball look, if that makes sense. Like, you know, cut it at the equator and you have a nice round sphere mm-hmm. to fit onto. And so a lot of times we can actually fit it well enough that we create suction to that implant uh, okay. that keeps it in. So that's the first line of security is really doing the fit correctly. And then the second line is their lids, but it should never be where the lids are like fighting to hold it in. That's the fit my next be, question. Yeah. So yeah. Yep. So it, the, the fit should be, designed to keep pressure off of their lids. That's, that's what you want. You want the socket to do the work. And you know, there's injuries that where you don't have a clean socket and that's where the custom aspect of it comes in. And that's a case that I would, or any ocular, not just me would classify as a more challenging case of of one that, you know, you're going to have to get creative with and find use, you know, go into your, your bag for lack of a better way to put it and find a technique or combination of techniques and designs that are going to do the best job for this person. Yeah. Wow. And how do you know how far out to like, I was thinking about the lids. Yeah. Lids have to train themselves to get up and over that. Are they in? How do how Yeah. Do they, how yeah, I know that, that's a great question. Again, let's just do our nucleation person, a clean socket. When they remove the eye and they place an ocular implant, the oculoplastic surgeons undervolume that implant. So like nine times out of 10, when a patient comes in for that conformer, that initial appointment with me, one of the biggest things or the first things they come up with or ask me is, you know, will my eyes start to open back up? 
and I, you explain to them that it's it has nothing to do with their lids or anything. It's just the fact that they're lacking volume in their socket. And that's where the prosthesis augments that. So they don't have to walk around and hold their brow up to try to keep their eye open. Yeah. The volume of the prosthesis will get that and the design of the prosthesis will get that lid into a position that is natural and that you don't have to think about. It's just like us with our eyes, you know, our eyes are open or they're closed. And so then it's, it's more for me when I'm thinking about fitting one is I know, okay, volume wise, I'm going to get that lid up. We're going to get it in a good spot. Again, circumstances dictate things. So not everything is a hundred percent perfect. And you try all the tips or all the tricks and design things that you can to get that lid and that crease and everything right where you as best you can or as close as you can. But then the big thing for me is having a piece that they can close down over. Yeah. And and again, in some instances, it's called lagophthalmos. In some instances, you have that where there's just not much you can do about it. And you, you involve the patient and you say, you know, okay, this X, Y, and Z is the reason for this. I am willing to allow you to have some lagophthalmos where it doesn't close all the way to have improved cosmesis. And then you get their feedback. And most often than not, they're say, yeah, I'll try it this way. And if we need to take some volume out, let's do it. But I, I want it to look as close and as natural as possible and see how I tolerate it. So it's person to person, case to case. You ever not get enough clearance for your prosthetic or is there always usually enough room? <laughs> it, I'm just laughing because I'm just thinking of, you know, all the different sockets over the years. It's my dad would always say that prosthetic eyes are, are like snowflakes at a, at a distance. They all, you know, that's okay. It's a prosthetic eye, but up close, they're all a little bit different. They're all designed a little bit mm-hmm. differently and not always. I mean, to answer your question directly, but most of the time that's dictated by circumstance, cause of eye loss. Yeah exterior factors that you don't always get a perfect result but more often than not people are so happy to even have the semblance of that normalcy of an eye that it just can kind of help mitigate a lot of things for them yeah the similarities between this and full arch dentistry is really fascinating because yeah. I mean, there's a lot of times where when we have to make something on that, it's compromised. You don't have enough space for various yeah. reasons and yep. you make it work and the patient's just ecstatic. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And it's just doing the best you can with what you got to work with. And a lot of what we do, you know, at the end of the day is creating illusions because it, it, it's a prosthesis. Even when we have that perfect socket to work with, perfect volume, good shape, I can, I can make a nice thick shape so we can have good depth of color. It's, you know, it's a prosthetic eye. So it's finding the ways to blend it in. And that's why you have to be trained how to do it because a lot of those things, like I'm sure you guys know, a lot, like a lot of things in life, Come from experience, yeah. Oh, yeah. And just building upon it and saying, "Okay, I've seen this before, and this is what I did last time, and it worked pretty good. Let's start there, and then see what else we got." You mentioned, does the, oh, does the um, patient take that out nightly and put it in like a solution or anything, kind of like a contact? That's or hilarious. That was my question. On <laughs> <laughs> today, I'm sorry. Well, you know, and, and it's so okay. So it's an acrylic piece, so it's a dry piece, so they don't have to store it in solution. And this may sound, well, maybe not. I don't know what, I, I assume most people take their teeth out at night and stuff. But for us, it's a less is more approach is good. So you want to obviously be hygienic. You want to take your prosthesis out and clean it when you need to. But we have found, and when I say we, it's just Ocularis in general, yep. kind of our organization and the people that work with prosthetics is the less people have to mess with them, the better they do. So we recommend that you take it out at least once a month, and again, oh, wow. that may sound crazy, at least once a month, you take it out, you clean it with, I get yelled at for calling it mild soap, but I say mild soap. And by that, I mean, baby shampoo or like very generic liquid dish soap are the two things that do a really good job. Mm-hmm. And you clean your piece, you rinse it off really well, and you put it back in. I would say most people that wear prosthetic eyes, whether it be a scleral shell or an actual standard prosthesis is... Somewhere between three and six weeks, every three and six weeks, they take it out and clean it and put it back in. Wow. That is, I literally thought you were going to say nightly. Yeah. So that even makes their life even better because they can yeah. put in at night and wake and up. And most people love that. You know, they come again for that consultation and a lot of times you'll get, well, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the opening and 
am I going to have to mess with this thing all the time? <laughs> you wow. get that a lot. Yeah. And so they're very relieved to, to hear that they don't have to. So why do they only last, what'd you say, five years on average? Yeah, yeah. So five to seven years is the average lifespan of a prosthesis. And that just goes back to the curing of the acrylic. So the acrylic starts to break down. It does. And it, it's it's a microscopic level of breaking down. And, you know, I always tell people when they ask me about the lifespan and I explain it to them and it's, it's not like your prosthesis will ever fall apart. It's not like you're going to take it out one day and it's going to be squishy or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We'll just become microscopically porous and it'll start retaining moisture from your socket. Or if you have any kind of bacteria or anything like that, and it can kind of retain and harbor that. And you know, again, I tell people that sounds scary because it's in your eye socket and it's, you know, in your head, close to your brain and all that. And it is. <laughs> yeah. But if you're proactive and you pay attention to it, it shouldn't be a big deal because more often than not, when people come in and they're saying, I need to get my eye replaced, you know, and, and a lot of people that we've had around for a long time, they do it about every five to seven years because they know and it's a feeling thing. A lot of them will come in and say, you know, I just started having a little bit more discharge and I know my eye was getting older and it just didn't feel quite as comfortable as it normally does. Like they're more aware of it in their socket. And that's kind of the indicators that, okay, age of acrylic is causing issues, stirring up discharge, irritation in your socket. And even if we don't need to update your actual fit and design, let's just get a new template made and and update the artwork and some new plastic. Well, don't naturalize age with the body. Don't you have to kind of keep up on that? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's amazing how our eyes change over time. I bet. When you have both your eyes, I think it's very easy to not notice it. Oh, sure, yeah. But, you know, I have someone who's worn an eye. Let's say they got this made when they were 40 and they come, they've got a ton of life out of it and they come back, you know, in their early 50s. They got a lot more pigment in the sclera and the wide of the eye. And most of the time, your iris starts to lighten as well. So, it, it you know, updating artwork after seven years is always good, even for kids. Yeah. yeah, I bet. I know when I was a young kid, I had a different eye color. So I imagine yep. if you do this for children, yep, it completely changes by the time they're an adult. Yep. Wow. And that's part of the, that we probably don't even have time to dive into is the pediatrics and congenital anomalies and the routine with them of getting babies when they're a month old and starting expansion therapy on an anophthalmic socket. You do them that young, huh? Yeah. Wow. It's all about the symmetry and development of their skull and of the bony orbit. So when let's say uh, it's pretty rare, it's, it's pretty rare. We see it a lot, obviously, because we're the only ones in Indiana and we're the only people that would deal with this, but to have a congenital anophthalmic socket. So a baby that's born with one eye and just an empty socket on the other side at the, there's a lot of time surgical work that goes into it. But at the end of the day, what we do is we get them as early as we can. And we start fitting clear templates that increase in size. And most of the time we see them every three to four weeks and put a bigger one in, bigger one in, bigger one in. And what that does is just by putting a tension on the soft tissue in the socket, that will help promote the bony orbit growth of their face so that as they grow, their face develops and is symmetrical. Like it should. Like it should, because normally it's the volume of the eye that's pushing on that and keeping that on pace. And they don't have that because they don't have a globe or anything in there. And same thing with microphthalmia, which is what we see more frequently, which is when a a baby is born with a really small eye. Wow. Things you don't think about, huh? (laughs) Yep. And that's a huge part of our practice, more so than other ocularists, I think, because my mom is actually a person who is very involved in developing the techniques for what I just explained. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Cool. So is there digital in your field? You know, is there anybody doing this with computers and printers and things like that? So, you know, there's no way to say it's not going there. You know, it's, it's kind of ocularistry is, is, is such a field that is the people that do it are so passionate about it that, you know, you, you're like, this is, this is how you do it. This is the right way to do it. But there's 3d printing and digital imagery for iris colors are the two things that we're seeing right now. Hmm. That's kind of at the the early stages, but that's where we're at. Not us yet. 
not in my office yet, but that's kind of the development and the things that we're starting to see when we go to our meetings and stuff like that. Are you excited for it? Are you, I am, I am, you know, I'm, so I'm, I'm 31. So I, you know, I grew up as a digital native. I'm not super technical, but that kind of stuff doesn't scare me. You know, it's, I think the older generation of ocularist, it's kind of like in any field as the old guard starts to wind down. It's like, I don't want to mess with, yeah, you know, sure. jumping into learning something completely new. But for me, it's exciting. I don't think that I would personally be at the forefront of it, but I would definitely jump into it once it's, okay, this works. This is this is how you do it. You know, this is something we can start doing. Yeah, I'm very excited for it. But I, I think having the foundation like in anything, again, having the foundation of, you know, I call it the proper way, but kind of the long way, let's call it the long way of doing it. The analog. Yeah. Yeah. The analog way of doing it. So if you needed to, you can, Yep, that's priceless. But I think that like most fields, technology is, is the wave. It's the future. Right. And I think it can be very beneficial. Yeah. That's a great attitude to have. Your parents probably maybe are thinking the same way, but it's good that you're into it so young so that you can <laughs> grasp it and hold on to it and learn it. Yep. Cool. So how many uh, eyes do you usually make in a week? What's your, <laughs> I don't know what, how busy are you? Yeah, yeah. And do you call them <laughs> <That's> units? <laughs> well, we call them eyes, you know, okay. you just call them eyes. But, you know, at the end of the day when you're talking to the accountant, they say, you know, units when they're breaking everything down. But no, for us, we call them eyes. That, we, that's, that's fine to call them that because that's what they are. I don't know. I would, so, I mean, it's, we stay pretty busy. So you have, let's just like say an average day, like uh, we, we are open nine to four. So normally in the morning, there's a 9 a.m. and a 10.30 a.m., which are big appointments, yep. whether that be a painting or like an adjustment, like something that's going to need to be cured that day to be processed for that client. So we have time to do that. And if anything, you know, goes awry, heaven forbid, you have time to fix it yep. kind of a thing. Yep. And then you sprinkle in a handful of six months checkups, which are just like clean and polishes, like someone coming in for a teeth cleaning, but much less involved because it's just checking health of socket, sterilizing their piece, resurfacing it, making sure they're doing fine and then double checking their fit that we don't see anything that needs to be changed. Normally about half hour appointments or so. And then in the afternoon, we normally have at least uh, two appointments. So one, two, or a three, at least two of those are filled in. And that's where you do like the consultation appointments or like the fittings. Yeah. So we stay pretty busy. Yeah. So I I don't know how many I do in a week. I mean, I'm doing at least, at least one a day, I would say. Wow. And are your parents still there or are they kind of phasing out? You said your dad was already retired, right? Yeah, yeah. My dad retired at the end of 2020. Hetzler Ocular started in 1979. So we've been around for a real long time. But dad retired after, how? what was it, like 41 years, I think, of doing it. And my mom, she's the one who started this company. She's the one that got our family <laughs> into prosthetic eyes. And yeah. that's a wild story for another time. But <laughs> this office, this field, what we do... It isn't her, and I think every good ocularist gets to this point, but she's a stellar ocularist. It's her identity. So she is winding down, but I don't know if she will ever not be here until she just can't. You know what I mean? I mean, it is, this is her baby. This is, she needs to make sure that it's right. And she has patients that she's been seeing since the early eighties that were babies and are married with kids now. And she loves to come in and see them and work with them so no we're we're still here and then i have a partner who is next year she'll be gearing up for her nebo which is the national examining board of ocularist which is our board exam she's in her sixth year so she's almost ready to take that so moving into the future though it'll still be two full-time ocularists with me and her wow but yeah i think mom will always be here dad he retired he's like i'm done i've been doing this you know i'm i'm gonna go tend my garden and hang out don't call me good for him yeah so one final question i'm very curious as dental technicians when we meet people we tend to notice their teeth okay do you notice people's eyes (laughs) 100 percent. yeah okay i figured as much do you look at people's eyes and said like oh i could do better (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's funny. And I see like even, even returning patients. I think that's, I know you're talking about people with two eyes, I, I imagine. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm thinking about patients now. I think that's just 
the right way to do things is is when I see eyes. A, a big point of pride for me is when a patient comes in and it's a, he's my dad has always made his eyes and you know he's kind of like well you know I wanted to see Jr. but I heard he's retired and and making an eye that I think looks better than the one that my dad made nice. that's kind of like myself little like oh yeah. And on the back, like, <laughs> all right, beat dad. That's cool. Do you snap a picture and put a collage together? Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> you know, I spend a lot of time with my dad, and even though he's retired, and we play trivia every Tuesday night, and I'll always bring pictures and show him, be like, hey, remember this guy? Look at this one. <laughs> so we have fun. That's great. It must be interesting Thanksgiving dinners at your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's weird how the dynamic has shifted now that I am in the field and oh, I've been doing yeah. it for a long time. It always revolves around that. It's definitely brings the family together and you always have something to talk about. And it's yeah. usually what you do. Yep. Yep. Zach, thank you so much. I knew awesome. I was going to be out of your zone coming into talking to a bunch of teeth people, but I found that yeah. extremely fascinating and I appreciate oh, yeah. it. Me too. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Like I said, I'm used to giving lectures and talking about specific content, but the industry and the the f- career as a whole, it was, <laughs> I didn't know what to expect. So, but this was a lot of fun. Oh yeah. It was awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Super appreciate it. And uh, if it's okay, I'd love to stop by sometime and take a look. 100%. Nice. That'd be completely fine. Yeah, I'm going to make arrangements for that. I totally want to see what all this looks like. So, yeah, yeah. Zach, appreciate it, sir. We'll talk to you, you later. You're welcome. Absolutely. Whitmix is thrilled to announce their most recent addition to their milling product line. Introducing the DWX 53DC from DG Shape. This powerful mill satisfies your need for speed. Three reasons to consider this mill. One, it has three times the gripping power for PMMA. Two, it mills 30% faster. And three, the integrated webcam allows you to monitor a milling project from anywhere on any device. Head over to tinyurl.com slash Mill. That's the word tiny, the letters U-R-L, dot com, forward slash Whitmix, R-O-L-A-N-D, mill. Or head over to this episode's show notes for a link. And as always, we appreciate your support of the podcast, Whitmix. A super big thanks to Zach for coming on our podcast. And, you know, it was weird talking to a couple dental technicians about your profession but we do appreciate your sharing your craft and thank you for all your hard work that you do. I tell you what, it's crazy to find industry that's so similar to ours and that it's even smaller than ours is even crazier. I didn't think that was possible. Yeah, well, it is. <laughs> what did he say the statistics were? There was only one in the whole state of Indiana. Yeah, crazy. But they say the smile is the window to a person's personality, but the eyes are the windows to the soul. Thank you very much, Zach. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's all we got for you. And we will talk to you next week. See ya. Bye. Archaeologist? No. Ocularist.